You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Everybody, welcome back to the Ducks Limit Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I'm going to be your host on this episode, Mike Brazier. And joining me in studio is my co-host, Chris Jennings. Chris, how are you? Excellent. Excellent. How are you? I'm doing great. We have a really exciting episode for you today. Uh, we always say these are exciting episodes. This <laughs> this one is. They are exciting. And, and this was a bit of a special treat because we're going to be talking with professional photographer Gary Kramer. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how you doing, guys? We're doing great. And, and Gary, I said this is a, a a particular treat for me and I, I know for Chris as well because we've known your name. People in the waterfowl profession will have known your name in one way or another for decades. You, Your name, your work, whether we're talking as a biologist or as a professional photographer has been sort of a signature item in the waterfowl field in North America for literally decades. And so we're here to talk with you today about a an incredible publication that came out this past year, Waterfowl of the World. All the photography is by you. You have a co-author, John Mincic, and we're going to give you an opportunity to kind of introduce all, all that. But it's it's an absolutely phenomenal book. And this is a, wanted to use this opportunity to talk about this book, to introduce people to it that may not have, have, have seen it. Um, I'll confess it was, it was my Christmas present for my wife. So she, she had a little yeah, bit of, she, she had a little bit of help from me identifying what I wanted as my Christmas present present, but, um, but this was it. And so that's what we're going to talk about for the majority of this episode. But first off, I want to give you an opportunity to, to introduce yourself, talk about your background as a biologist and then as a photographer. Well, let's see. I kind of start back in the day when uh, this book came about kind of because of two things. One is my background as a a biologist and a refuge manager. I worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for 26 years. Kind of the first half of that, that career was as a wildlife waterfowl biologist at a number of stations. And then the last two uh, stations I was at, I was a refuge manager or the project leader that kind of ran the operation. The last one being the Sacramento National Wildlife Refuge uh, here in Northern California. And then on the other side of the the coin is that because of that interest and the fact that a long, long time ago in the 70s, I started to do a few outdoor articles. And for some initially local magazines and eventually uh, national magazines, and I pretty quickly found out that if you're writing a story, it's way easier to sell if you can put photos with it and give them a package. 
So with no formal training in photography whatsoever, I started to do more and more of that. You don't get any paid more money, any, any additional money, but it was just easier to sell it. So I started to do that. And pretty quickly, I found that while I, I write on a regular basis, it's really the photography that's kind of my passion. So then that is kind of the two things that put this together. My, the background that I had as a biologist and a manager, the fact that I had done a bunch of writing and a lot of photography, then I said, well, you know, this is something that I've always thought about doing, but could I really do it? And that kind of set the wheels in motion. Chris, I know you've had a had an interaction with Gary for a long time through your work on the magazine, and I know you have some questions for him in that context. Yeah, um, you know, Gary, obviously you work probably much closer with John Hoffman, our photo editor, um, but, you know, like we mentioned off-air before we came on here, you know, you are one, and, and one thing I want to point out is some of our listeners and, and DU members, um, the millions and millions of eyes that have read Ducks Unlimited magazine over the years would be very familiar with your work, Gary. And that's because you have a, you know, the only photographer that we have who has like a long standing, um, you know, really just an, an notable, um, you know, achievement really, um, of how many years in a row and how uh, you've had an, a, an image in ducks unlimited magazine, every single issue for how many years again, you want to <laughs> clarify that? Yeah, well, we were talking about that. It's, it's It depends on whether you count 22 or 23, but either 25 or 26 years consecutive, every issue I've had, one image in minimum. Generally, it's not one. Mm -hmm. It's it's several. But I've been very fortunate that, you know, I stay in contact, get new stuff. I think that's the key is getting, submitting new images all the time. And I've been a very fortunate. Uh, I look at it every magazine when it comes out because I never know until I see the magazine exactly what's used. Mm -hmm. So I kind of open the magazine and flip through the pages. And if I don't see a photo of mine pretty quick, I start to get a little concerned. And if I ever have one, an issue with that one, I might just have a heart attack on the spot. So I've been very lucky. <laughs> I'll let John know that for sure. Just for your well-being, I'll make sure that, yeah, that John knows. Um, but, you know, our, our listeners and readers are also going to be very familiar with um, not only Gary's work, but also, you know, this Waterfowl of the World book because we did an excerpt you know, in the magazine last year when the book came out. Uh, we did a photo essay, more or less. Um, and it was fantastic. Very well received. Uh, beautiful layout. I mean, it was just just spectacular. Um, what did that mean for you, kind of uh, having us do the excerpt from the book and, and create this photo essay to kind of help you promote it? Well, it, it probably was the single most important thing that occurred because the timing was just perfect. The book had literally originally was supposed to come out like October 1st. And because of all the supply chain stuff, it really didn't come out till December 1st. And that article was in the November, December issue. So it was really the launch of the book to the public, let them know it was out there and where they could get it. And I'm telling you what, I mean, I can't thank you guys enough for the number of orders I got that I know came directly off that article. And it was, uh, you know, it was an eight-pager with a ton of photos. So it was really one of the things I was most proud of from a standpoint of portraying my work. But you guys did a super job on getting that out there. And then those sales have continued. This book has been selling like crazy to the point that it's my belief that Amazon's out of them at the time. And the only place you can get them is directly from me. And I have some left, but I sold three-quarters of the print run. 
in one in one year. Gary, why don't you go ahead and tell people where they can where they can find this? But we'll cover this again on the back end. But for people that for whatever reason may drop off of this this episode later on, go ahead and tell them right now where they can find a copy of the book. Yeah, the best way to do it and the easiest really is to go to my website, which is Gary Kramer, K R A M E R dot net. And you'll go to books, click on books, and then the, they'll come up. And then you just click on uh, Waterfowl of the World. There's actually two editions. There's a standard edition, uh, which is $99 shipped anywhere in the U.S. And then there's a limited, which is the book that you have there in front of you, the limited edition. And that's 250 That was a limited run of 250 leather cover, comes in a, in a, uh, in a, in a slipcase. And then you just go to, you click on the PayPal button and it becomes automatic. So that's uh, Gary, G-A-R-Y, Kramer, K-R-A-M-E-R dot net. Go to books, click on on the PayPal button, and you got a book. And if you're into waterfowl, whether it be just North America or if you have an interest worldwide, it's worth every penny, whether you choose the $99 or the $250. Uh, it's it's an absolutely fabulous book. We're going to get into that here. But Gary, before we, before we do that, I wanted your thoughts, like as a professional wildlife photographer, but then also starting out as a as a as a manager. How do you view, I guess, sort of this this synergistic role between photography and our ability to reach the public with regard to the value of natural resources and the importance of the conservation work, the management work that that you've been involved in for so many years? Well, I think you know the photos are are super important because what like this is a, a book is a good example. Uh, and then I did a book prior to this that was a coffee table. I've done several. Actually, this is my seventh book actually. And what people typically do is they flip through all the pages, they look at the photos, and then they'll go back and read something that they have an interest in. It's not the type of book that you read like a novel from front to back. And I think photos, whether it be DU Magazine, books like this, it really brings it to the forefront of of what we're trying to do here from a conservation standpoint, from a hunting standpoint, and because photos catch people. And as a result, that's always been the thing that I tried to get out there is, is get quality photos out that people can appreciate. And then, you know, writing, I do plenty of that, but that's frankly secondary. But then you go to the text or you go to DU Magazine and then you read the text. So I think photos are super important, probably the single most important in getting people excited about things. Well, I can tell you it does that. Chris, anything else before we jump into the uh, into a description of the book? No, no. I think we jump right into the book. I'm excited. Gary, I'm going give to you, give you an opportunity to to introduce this book to people. Uh, I know you've described it a number of times, and, and I could take a stab at it, but I want to hear the way you describe it, what it means to you, and what you think it will mean to other people. Uh, it's a book that uh, uh, worldwide, there's 167 species of waterfowl, and that's full species, not subspecies. That would be unreasonable to figure that to get a photo of, you know, there's seven subspecies of Canada geese and four cackling geese and so on and so forth. But there's 167 full species. And there really had not been a book done since the late 90s that covered all the species. And that was called The Natural History of the Waterfowl by Frank Todd. Now, he didn't take all the photos. Uh, He did write it. But we're talking about 90s technology. There was no... uh, uh, no digital photography as we can as we can do it. It was all slides, and the quality of the images, you know, while they were good for the day, frankly, were were not up to par what we have now. Plus, you know, that's almost twenty five years or so, and there's been a million changes in the world as far as these these populations. So I kind of embarked upon this thing, figuring, well, it's something I'll do once in my life only, 
and it's going to be expensive. And at this point in my life, I decided I would just bite the bullet, spend the money, and spend the time. So eventually what happened is it, took, it was a four-year project. And at first, it started out as pretty much a coffee table book with mostly photos. But then as time went on, I, I really realized that there was no biological information that was available either. So with that in mind, then it, then it took on a, the role of being a coffee table book. You know, it's a monster book. It's, it's a huge thing, 540 pages, uh, 1,300 photographs, and then added the biological uh, information on every species in the world. So then I hit the road, and I went to 40 uh, countries in 36 months to get the photos. So that meant that, and that part of that was during COVID, which was nuts. And uh, I just kept at it, getting the photos, and then, you know, came home and, and wrote the thing. So it really is my my opus, kind of the last big, huge thing I'll probably do. I mean, it was such a massive undertaking. So I really look at it at the culmination of my career, both as a biologist, whose my interest was always in waterfowl. I did my master's degree on on Black Brant in Mexico and their migration. So started with that. Then I did my education. Then I worked for the service and then became a photographer. So you put all these factors together and I came up with this book, which is really, just because I did it, I'm not saying this, but it really is one of a kind. And there'd be nobody, I don't think, quite crazy enough to get it done like, like I did over those four years. But Got it done. Yeah, forty countries in thirty six months. You were you were traveling, getting after it there. That's that's awesome. Gary, your comment there about the the praise that you that that you described there is is not just yours. Uh, the one of the unique things about this book is there are two forewords in it, one by Dr. John Eady, uh, the other by former CEO here of Ducks Unlimited, H. Dale Hall. I know both of those guys. They're both outstanding professionals and individuals and leaders in this field. And Dr. John Eady, I know you're very familiar with him. He is a the Dennis Raveling Endowed Chair in Wetland Biology at the University of California, Davis. And we've have had him on several episodes here before. And I want to read a little bit from his foreword because knowing John and knowing the type of person and, and intellectual that he is, to read this and have the, John's praise um, is is got to be pretty special. He, he's, he writes here, the amount of effort it took to produce this one-stop comprehensive compendium is almost unimaginable. Kramer traveled to 40 countries in three years at his own expense to photograph all of the 167 species of ducks, geese, and swans on the planet. Just seeing the majority of these species would be a lifetime accomplishment for many of us, but to photograph them so exquisitely in their natural habitat is something well beyond the grasp of even the most accomplished wildlife photographer. Quite simply, Waterfowl of the World is an extraordinary accomplishment. It will prove to be an outstanding resource for a broad constituency of readers and a must-have addition to the bookshelf of waterfowl enthusiasts wetland managers and biologists throughout the world. I mean, that, that's some pretty high praise from, from John, kind of knowing who he is. How, that, that had to make you, pretty spe- make you feel pretty special. Oh, yeah. I mean, it made me, you know, when I read that thing, it's kind of like, wow, this, this guy's going over the, over, on the, on the, <laughs> over the edge. But, uh, you know, I know him real well, worked with him over the years. Uh, and I really appreciate, I mean, I asked him to do that. And when it came through like that, it really was like the ultimate compliment. You're talking about somebody who's one of the most well-respected uh, professors of, of um, waterfowl biology uh, in the world, really. And for him to come up with, uh, and first of all, just agree to do it. And then secondarily to write that, the same thing with Dale. I've known Dale for years and years and years. In fact, when I worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service, while he wasn't my direct supervisor, there was a period of time where he was a 
couple of notches above me and was in fact my supervisor. So I know Dale as well. And they both didn't hesitate for a second. And I was extremely flattered that they would do it and write those words. You know, just mentioning how much you did travel. And like you said, during COVID, I think one interesting question from me is what was the most difficult species for you to, one, travel to, but also, you know, and it may differ. You may have several. Um, the traveling was one thing, but once you get there, the actual photography, you know, of this specific species. So which one was the most difficult to to get to and photograph? Well, there's, that, that, there's kind of two that I can, that immediately come to mind. <clears throat> one is the rarest duck in the world, and that is the Madagascar poachard. It's a diving duck like a redhead or a canvasback found only on the, the island of Madagascar. And it was thought extinct for 15 years. I mean, nobody on the planet had seen it. And there happened to be some biologists that were up in the mountains of, of uh, Madagascar looking for an endangered raptor. And they came across this duck and looked at it and said, you know, God, I'm not sure what kind of duck that is. I mean, I wonder if that could possibly be the extinct duck we haven't seen for 15 years. And uh, they weren't directly waterfowl people. They went back to the to the field guidance, and lo and behold, that is a duck that we thought that was was extinct. And at the time, I believe there was 23 of them in the world on one lake. So obviously, that's something that I had to get. So put it together and traveled to Madagascar. It took six days of travel time to get to that single lake that at the time had about 60 birds on it. So the, I, I left in the evening, so I counted that. Then it was flying to Europe, from Europe to from Europe to, uh, to Ethiopia, from Ethiopia to Madagascar. That took three days, you know, a, a, an evening and two full days. Then it was a 10-hour drive on pavement that was mostly potholes. That was day four. Day five was another 10-hour drive on all dirt. And the last day was only about 40 miles. It took five hours. It was the worst road I've ever seen in my life. Got stuck going in, got stuck going out, got to the lake, which is remote, super remote up in the mountains of Madagascar, and there's a research station there that's been put there for the duck because they're doing some uh, captive breeding of that species and for these raptors that are and, and other birds. Hiked down to the lake, got in a yellow canoe that had been on that lake for years that the birds were somewhat habituated to, and within the first 10 minutes, I got, I don't know, two dozen photos of the most endangered duck in the world. <laughs> That's wow. awesome. So once I got there, it wasn't. So I stayed there three days, got all kinds of photos, probably more photos of the Madagascar poachard than anybody on the planet even has, and uh, and got the most difficult. Uh, not the most difficult, the rarest yeah. one. So that's kind of one side of the coin, which is getting to the rarest duck in the world. Did you get a? Did you have a guide? Like yes. when you got okay, so did you have to call like Madagascar in Madagascar and be like, "Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Is there someone that can basically guide?" Yeah, me? you know, throughout the book, what I found <clears throat> is that wherever I went, I always had to have a guide of some sort because I wasn't about to go there and try to figure it out myself in the limited time that I had. So, one way or the other. I would either hire somebody or find somebody to help me once I got there. And in this particular case, the, the, the research station was run by the Wildfowl Trust out of England in cooperation with Dural Wildlife, which is an endangered species conservation group, and the Peregrine Fund out of Boise, Idaho. So I had a connection in the fact that I could get a hold of those guys ahead of time and say, hey, look, I'm working on this book and I need to, you know, really, really need to get these 
photos and anything you can do will be just greatly appreciated. Nine times out of 10, the people jumped on it and, and set me up. And this is a case that it was all predisposed once I got there to get a local guy that could put me on the birds. And, you know, we camped out and ate with the crew there, but it, it ended up working great. And that's what happened really all over the world is either I hired somebody or in this case, I didn't hire them. They just helped me out. And then the other one that's, that, that I say biologically was the most difficult is uh, a duck called the Salvadori's teal. And it is found only in the mountains of Papua New Guinea, nowhere else in the world, and there's none in captivity, not a single one. So it isn't like I could go find it anywhere. So flew to Australia. From Australia, flew to Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. From there, flew to a, um, a village up in the mountains. It has a flight every day seven days a week, but generally only two or three of them make it because the weather's so crappy. Foggy, rainy, overcast. So flew there. And this is a duck that I searched the internet, unbelievable. And I, didn't, I could not find a single what I call professional level photograph. It didn't exist. There were photos through a scope and there were photos um, at a great distance that were cropped heavily, but there just weren't any decent photos. So once I got there, it was pretty quick that I found out what the deal was, is that you drive around the dirt roads. And the name of the town was Tabubal, which was a mining town up in the mountains. Drive around on the dirt roads. There are a riverine species found only as pairs in family groups, never in flocks. Got out of the car, found a pair the first afternoon, got out of the car, stepped out of the car, and at 150 yards, they flew. I mean, it, it was like... There were specks in the distance, but any movement, because we'll come to find out in Papua New Guinea, everything, if it flies, it dies. Either the kids shoot them with BB guns or pellet guns. If it's something that you can eat, they eat it. Or if it has a pretty headdress, like a bird of paradise, the feathers, and they use it for a headdress. So they're so wary. Anyways, I was there for a week. I spent, and the only way I figured I could photograph things was from a blind. So I spent 60 hours, six days, 10 hours a day in a blind waiting for them to come down a river. We'd see them, a pair, and then I'd get on the river in the dark with a, make a blind, and then they wouldn't show up. And there's, there's not a lot of them either. Finally, on the fifth afternoon, I, had, I got about maybe six mi minutes of photography for 60 hours in a blind, and that's what's in the book. So, so biologically... They're in a tough place to get to, which was New Guinea. Then you got to go up in the mountains. The weather's always crappy. The birds are super wary. There's not very many of them. And Oh, and the other thing, too, is that it was also uh, a lot of activity. I'd find a bird and then go in there the next day. And one day I was sitting in a blind, for instance, and I hear chainsaws. And, they're doing, and I look out and there's like slash and burn agriculture happening right next to where I'm sitting. So stuff like that would happen. I'd get all set up. Uh, that, in that particular morning, I had a bird coming down the, the, the stream that was going to make it to me, and it never did because of all the commotion. So there's a lot of things going on. It was just a difficult bird to begin with. So when I got both of those, the rarest duck on the planet, and what I considered from the very beginning the hardest one, then I was very, very pleased. Gary, I'm looking at the photos of the of the Salvadori's teal right now, and, and yeah, you got great photos of it. It was it's not 150 yards in the distance. Um, how how close? Do you remember about how close were these birds whenever you you, you finally photographed them? Yeah, what, what happened with those, with those birds is there was a pair that came. You know, it, it's a riverine situation. They were coming downstream, 
they got within maybe about 60 yards and then they went behind a rock and disappeared. And I go, oh my God, these things are, I'm never going to see them close enough. Well, eventually they got within maybe about 30 to 40 yards and they jumped up on a gravel bar like those photos. And then they went to preening right in front of me. Almost all the photos in the book are taken with a 600 millimeter lens. So the thing is, is that to really get a decent picture, you kind of got to be within about 30 yards, maybe 40 at the most. I mean, I like 20. So the thing is, is that when you look at a picture, whether I took it or any other good waterfowl photographer, and there's a bunch of those around, they're just not easy to come by. You got to get close. So that's the case there. Gary, I think this is a good place to take a break, and then we will come back, and we will uh, we'll continue the conversation. I have a number of other questions. I think Chris does as well, but stick with us, Gary. We'll be right back. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with professional photographer, waterfowl biologist, Gary Kramer. We're discussing his Waterfowl of the World book. And Gary, when we when we left for the break, you had described your, what it took to get a picture of Salvador's teal. And in that description, you alluded to one of the things that as a waterfowl ecologist, I find super valuable in this um, in this book, you talk for each of the species, as, as we've talked about before, alluded to before, it's more than just photographs. For each species, there are very succinct yet valuable descriptions of the bird itself, of its biology, its mating system, its distribution, and then its conservation and status. And it's that conservation and status paragraph that I find myself kind of keying in on as I'm going through this book and, and thinking about you know, looking at what what are the the best estimates, the best guesses for some of them of what their population size is and what are the different threats to those populations. And you mentioned uh, in Papua New Guinea the the slash and burn um, removal of, of habitat that affects these birds. How how stark were some of those observations as you traveled worldwide about the threats that, that these birds and, and other birds and other wildlife face, um, you know, outside of, outside of North America? Yeah, that's something that was really, really obvious. As you travel around, you find really that the key to, to maintaining these species is to maintain the habitat. And in places like Madagascar, for instance, I mean, there, wherever there was any water, there would be a rice field. But there's no ducks on it, zero, zero wild ducks, because there's a lot of human activity. They release domestic ducks on there to raise for food. So when the habitat goes away, the, the species go away. And I found Madagascar is, is destroyed as far as their habitat base. And that's one of the reasons this particular duck in Madagascar, the Madagascar poacher, was probably never very plentiful, just one of those type of species. But, you know, the loss of wetlands 
really made a big a, a big difference. Overgrazing is an issue too in a lot of places where you have species that that feed in the grasslands. So you know, as far as that goes, I mean, the number one thing that 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 dawned on me when I was I already knew it, but I saw it firsthand was the the lack of habitat. So maintaining habitat is the key to maintaining these birds. And there's a lot of third world countries where that's not occurring. India, I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of agriculture, a lot of, a lot of livestock, and uh, the habitat, a lot of it's destroyed. So what we do with DU you know, and what the Fish and Wildlife Service has done, maintaining habitat in our country, we're in far better shape than most places in the world. Although there are some real wilderness areas, particularly in Africa, that never have been touched and probably won't. So it kind of depends upon where you're at. Gary, one of the other things that I noticed as I was going through here, and and this will be obvious to people as they look at the pictures and then read the descriptions, and it relates to something that we've that that just a couple of weeks ago we put out a little. Well, I guess it was Barstool Outdoors put out a little social media post about you know do ducks mate for life, and I realized right after I I recorded that or or made that gave the answer that in my mind when I was answering that I was thinking about North American North American ducks. You go through this through this book. And you, as you go from page to page, you know, a lot of these are tropical species. They're southern hemisphere species. Most of those ducks, tropical and southern hemisphere, you will see from the pictures, they're, they're monochromatic. The males and the females are similar in appearance. You'll read the descriptions. It will, it will show, it'll tell you that they will pair or they will, they reach sexual maturity at, at maybe two years of age or, or, or older. And then it, they, uh, they form lifelong, some of them, lifelong pair bonds, more so than we see in the, in the northern hemisphere. And, and that whether we're talking about n- uh, North America or Europe and Asia, that kind of pattern um, holds as we as we kind of look across the globe. How much of like how much of your understanding of waterfowl ecology was, I guess, was was accentuated or was 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 further developed as a result of going around the world and and doing uh, this photography? Yeah, that's really an interesting question because the first thing that happened, one of the very first things was, is that when I went to Australia, I was very interested in finding out. I mean, we're so used to the fact that, you know, I don't want to go take a picture of a pintail in July or a mallard because they're in eclipse plumage or going to, males are going to be brown, nasty looking. They might even be flightless, right? So you don't want to do that. So I go, okay, now, the, the, the seasons are the opposite in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, whatever, Africa. So what time of the year should I go? And I started to look through the literature, and it was, it was hard to figure that out. Because the reality is, and I've then made a point of, of doing those type of explanations in the book, is that, for instance, a species in Australia, like a pink-eared duck, they look the same every day of the year. Not like ours. And the male and female look alike. There's no sexual dimorphism like a mallard hen and a drake, right? Well, the reason is, is because a lot of the breeding, for instance, in Australia is based on local rainfall. So biologically, they have to be prepared to mate and raise young any day of the year. So what happens is they don't get to the point to where they're, where they're losing their feathers and they're turning brown and ugly. They have to be ready because if it rains in the outback, could be 300 miles away, then there may be 20,000 ducks for some unknown reason fly there, set up mating and hatch. So the mating is not 
The mating and, and brood rearing is not like our northern hemisphere. It can happen any time of the year. So there are certainly peaks. But that was one thing. So it didn't make that much difference when I'm in. I could go, you know, I could go in July or I could go in December in a lot of the southern hemisphere places. I generally picked what was the traditional breeding season to go to get the good plumage. But it's interesting that that was not available in most of the literature. So I call that out throughout the book. I, I say, you know, what the breeding biology is like in these birds so people will have an idea of what the bird's going to look like. And that was, you know, so the birds in, in parts of Africa, exactly as you said, a lot of the tropical species, male and female look alike and they can breed any month of the year. And the other thing that really stands out, jumps out at you as you flip through the pages, you see the phylogenetic relationships just based on the physical appearance of the birds. I've got the book open right now and I'm looking at the Australasian shoveler. Chris, which bird does that look like? I mean, obviously it's a shoveler, but you see- It looks like a, a blue wing too. It, it yeah. looks like a hybrid between a blue yeah. wing and a shoveler. Those types of phylogenetic relationships, I mean, they they just jump off the off the page at you as you're flipping through some of the some of them some of them you scratch your head and like wow what caused that bird to 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 diverge so uh in, in such a dramatic way from some of its other uh, other relatives but I'm, I, I guess I'm, I'm sure that was one of the things that you thought about as well gary is certainly as you organize the book uh species that are more closely related you have those in groups and and that i guess that's the other thing to point out is that you did organize these the species according to uh, phylogenetic uh, kind of uh, relationships, correct? Yes, uh, that's what I try to do. I mean, for instance, you know, the, the shovelers of the world, the northern shoveler, the uh, red shoveler in South America, the Australian shoveler, and then the, uh, the, the shoveler in, in uh, the Cape shoveler in Africa. I put all those together, and as you flip through them, you can kind of see that they really are all shovelers with different plumage. They all behave almost identical no matter where they're at. And in the case of the one you pointed out, I mean, that's like a, it looks like a cross between a blue wing and a northern shoveler. And it, it is a super pretty bird. It's a very cool looking duck. So I tried to do that throughout uh, the book. And as you notice, it's divided into four sections. It's divided into the tree ducks or whistling ducks, actually whistling ducks. They used to call them tree ducks. That's, I, I group those. Then I group all the geese. Then I group the shell ducks and the shell geese, which are what we don't have here in North America, but they're widespread other places, and then all the ducks so that people can go through there and kind of pick them out that way. Other than the two species that you've already mentioned, um, was there any species that you were really kind of dreading? You were kind of looking at where they lived and, and how much you were going to have travel, whatever, and you're like, oh, no, like this one's going to be really tough. And then surprisingly, it was really easy. So was there any species that, that kind of stood out like that? Yeah, there was one that just jumps right out exactly like, as you described, and that was a, a bird called the Andaman teal, found only in the Andaman Islands, which is actually owned by India but closer to Thailand. And it was one of those that was a long way to go, uh, super tropical, hot, and I'm going, well, it's kind of going to the end of the earth to get there. So I had to fly to New Delhi, India, photograph there for about 10 days, and then I had to take a flight to Chennai, India, and then fly out to the uh, Andaman Islands, and the capital of that island is Port Blair. So I got off the airplane, and it's, uh, you know, all their domestic flights, you just step out on a, there's no jetway, and it was like, it was 8.30 in the morning. It's already 90 degrees and like 80% humidity, like craziness. And I had a guide all lined up. And I got off the airplane, met the guy. 
And I said, look, I just came 6,000 miles to get a picture of this duck. I mean, what's the chances of us getting the duck? And he says, you know, kind of a, don't worry, Saeed, just be patient. You know, one of those deals. So we jump in the vehicle. We drive about a half hour to the edge of town to what is really an urban wetland. I mean, there was trash along the edge of the edge of the uh, of the wetland. By now, it's you know past nine in the morning. It's blazing hot, and he says, "Look over there." Well, this particular duck, the the population estimated there's one thousand in the world. I looked over there, and there were four hundred of them sitting on this one pond. <laughs> nice, you're hey, you are on the X there. <laughs> yeah, I was on the X, and the thing was is that you know, and there was enough human activity that they weren't all that spooky. There's no hunting in India at all, so there was no hunting. It was it was kind of an urban situation. And for the next th- three days, I photographed those guys in every way, shape, form, flying, sitting, and it was one that I just dreaded. But when I got there, it was it was ridiculously easy. Wow, that's awesome. Was, was there any like goose species that was harder than the than the other one? Like I'm just trying to think of you know I saw a couple different species variations of geese in here, but as Mike's flipping through the book, and I was just curious uh, if there's any goose species that was incredibly difficult to catch up with. Yeah, the toughest one there really for me was the uh, red-breasted goose. And that's uh, probably, you know, they're really gorgeous, really pretty birds. Small, size of a cackler, uh, but but real uh, uh, reddish, red and, and black coloration. And they breed way north in uh, in Russia, which wasn't a reality probably for me to get to. But they winter in Bulgaria and Romania, right on the edge of the Black Sea. And it was one that the first trip I went there, I essentially didn't get any photos because it was a very, very uh, cold winter and the birds went further south than they normally do. So I had to go back again. And the second time was, uh, was much better but still, it wasn't, uh, they're so unpredictable as far as where they winter. I mean, they winter in a very distinct area. But the problem is, is that they're super spooky. It's, it's one of these kind that you almost have to do it from a blind and get there in the dark because it isn't like you can drive by in your car and, and do it because every car somebody pokes a, 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 a gun out of and they actually shoot them with a rifle. So they're super spooky. Not, I mean, not not the red-breasted. They're an endangered species. They're protected, but there's a lot of white-fronted geese there too. So that one was tough. It took a couple trips. And the second trip, they had moved location. So I arrived there at like, I don't know, 8.30 at night, got to where my rental car was, and and uh, the guy said, well, we can't rent your car. I said, well, why? He says, we, you know, unless you have an international driver's license, which I never heard of. And And he said, but are you in the military? I said, no. But I said, how about if I work for the government? He said, oh, that's okay. And he rented me the car. (laughs) (laughs) And then I drove like four hours in the middle of the night through Transylvania. I mean, literally where Dracula's home ground and got to to my guide the next morning about daylight and, or no, before daylight, woke him up and we went out in the field and most of the birds had already left just because of timing. So that was a tough one and I had to go to go there twice yeah at gary not only did you get great photos of the red-breasted goose you got photos of banded red-breasted geese yeah. one of them like you have two here the i guess the cover photo for this particular um spread for this goose is it's, it's a i don't maybe it's a pair male female i would guess uh both are banded one has a plastic colored alphanumeric leg band is there a story behind that 
Well, you know, it's, because it's an endangered species, I think if, I don't recall the number exactly, but I think we're talking 40,000 or something, and it's completely protected. It, it's it's, it's kind of like, here in North America, Brant probably carry the most leg bands, you know, tarsal bands and leg bands, because there's a lot of study going on with them. And it's kind of the same with red-breasted geese. There's, there is actually quite a bit of study going on in some cooperative ventures where they're doing some banding and and leg marking. But, so, but you oh, weren't with the researcher or anything of that nature and that, okay. No, not at okay, that time, so that, no. that, All right. Like there's just all sorts of cool information in here and some of the photos capture the cool information. I think if I'm remembering correctly, the heart lobs duck from, from Africa, is that in the, the Congo? Is that, do I remember that right? Uh, I photographed that in the Central African Republic. Okay. All right. And yeah. one of the unique things about it is that you, you cite that it oftentimes forages in elephant dung, removing the seeds and fruits, and 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 there are ele- that's where you photograph some of them, right? Yeah, it was, that was a real interesting one. The fact is, is that they're very, very widespread. They're not rare at all, but they're but they're tied to these very unique habitats, which is uh, what they call a by, which are these openings in the equatorial rainforest, and that's and that's what you see in the book is that. What'll happen is that the, the the forest is so thick that you can hardly walk through it. I mean, elephants get through it, but it's pretty tough. And then you get these openings where there's where there's usually a, a wetland and mineral soils, and the elephants will come in there to to get that the minerals out of the soil. They actually eat the dirt and the mud to get the minerals out of it. Uh, and then you find the Hartlabs duck will go in there and forage. And I actually in the book have a picture of them standing next to elephants. And uh, and then I have a picture of one of those openings at the bottom of that page that shows I don't know how many elephants are in there thirty or forty. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get to that. Um, yeah, it's something of that nature for sure. So there was there was really interesting things like that to where, and that duck is interesting in the fact that there has never been a wild nest located and described. So when it came to find figuring out the fledging period, you know how long it takes until the birds can fly. What, an, what a clutch size is normally, what the color of the egg is. I actually had to go to a, to a waterfowl breeder to find that out because it wasn't available from wild populations. That, that didn't happen to be, uh, that guy didn't happen to be in Louisiana, did it? No, it was, uh, I went to, it was called Sylvan Heights okay. uh, Park, and that's in North Carolina. And, and he he bred them. Yeah, Paul Dixon at um, uh, Panola Aviary has some as well. I was actually over there a few months ago. It's the first time I'd ever seen them, of course. And then, of course, it just so happens that on the facing page is the torrent duck. It's an absolutely incredible duck, uh, another one of those stream-dwelling ducks. Was that one hard to to locate? Uh, that, that one was kind of moderately hard because they're so widespread. I mean, I have pictures in the book from Colombia at the very north and from and from Chile at the south. They're, they're very widespread in the Andes. Uh, again, they're only found, they're a riverine duck found in swift water, you know, trout streams, basically. And uh, you find them in pairs and family groups in every flock. But because on some of these trout streams, there's some boat activity by fishermen, they're not super wary. So as a result of that, I was able to get pretty close to them in both locations, which was nice. But they're a very, very cool looking duck. Yeah. So I wanted to ask kind of similar along with the lines of my other questions that I keep having here, because I think what makes this 
the, well, the book and this whole, you know, describing to the podcast is just for me, man, the adventure behind this book is really cool. I'm like, I'm jealous that you, you know, traveled around the world to these wild places. Was there any place, because it sounded like you went to some pretty rough country. Um, was there any specific place that you, you know, maybe ran into trouble or didn't really feel that safe? Or was there any kind of scary moments as far as that goes? Because I mean, if you're, you know, trekking through the, you know, African jungles and South America, I mean, there's some pretty dangerous places there. You're asking if he had any near-death experiences, yeah, I, right? I mean, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to hear the story. Well, I'm a story guy. Okay, there you go. Here's the story on that one. All right. Okay, of all the places I went to, the only time that there was, I mean, you never know. I mean, the, the place where you're going to get hurt is in a car wreck in these foreign countries. That's where it's mm. going to happen. Or, or a small aircraft is going to go, you know, nose in. But then the, the, the one time it didn't materialize, but it could have been ugly. And that is, is that I was in Kenya and I was photographing African black ducks, which is another one of these half a dozen riverine species that are found in, in, uh, in creeks and rivers, found in pairs, family groups. And the guy that I hired, he said, hey, I know where there's several pairs uh, in this river uh, it's in near Thompson Falls, Kenya. So we, I fly to Nairobi, get in the car with him, drive several hours there, spend the night, get up the next morning, walk to a bridge over the river and, you know, get my binoculars out. And I go, well, God, there's a pair. I mean, here, I, you know, I just traveled halfway around the world. And the first 10 minutes I got a pair, he says, well, we can't go to the river. I said, well, why not? He said, well, we have to wait for the game rangers to show up. I said, well, why do we got to wait for the game rangers to show up? The ducks are right there. I mean, give me 10 minutes. I'll get to them and get my photo, I hope. Then the guy says, there's a rogue hippo that lives in this river, and he's killed three people in the last wow. month. Wow, yeah. So we want to make sure that he's not around. And if you do go near the river, you have to have the armed rangers with you. So 10 minutes later, two guys show up. In fact, I even have a photo in the back of the book of the guys with their you know, World War II rifles. And, you know, they, they went, went down the river kind of ahead of me and checked it out. And then once they decided that the, that the rogue hippo wasn't, wasn't there, I went to photograph him. But they stood, they, they stayed not on top of me because they would have spooked the birds. But, you know, within a good distance of me, you know, they backed off a little bit and I got my photos. But, tip, you know, that could have been, if it wasn't that, if I would have just saw those ducks and ran down there not knowing what was going on, and that hippo happened to be there, I might have been number four. Yeah. Who knows? But That's why you get a guide. Yeah, there, so that's why you get a guide that says, look, you can't go to the river. Why the hell not? Well, because, okay, buddy, I yeah, get it. There's a random hippo. Wow, that's uh, that's a pretty good one. Mike, you got another question here? Well, I was just going to confess to Gary that I had not even flipped all the way to the back yet to see the photographer's notes. It looks as though there's a ton of stories embedded in here, and there are photographs mm -hmm. of the two gentlemen that you that you talked about, photos of you, photos from from the adventure across the world. Man, that's um, that's pretty incredible. I guess the one thing that I would that I would ask is like, did you, was there any, anything that you would consider a notable discovery for you personally or with respect to worldwide waterfowl or, or even something that, that maybe waterfowl ecologists may not have been aware of or that you had the opportunity to observe anything like that? Well, I, I think that, that the one thing that, that was interesting, it, it was when you look at the conservation status, which you mentioned before, 
You know, the information that I use for the species that, that we do surveys on, you know, in the United States, the, the breeding ground survey and even the midwinter surveys are the best waterfowl estimates on the planet. There's nothing that even comes close. So you usually get estimates from some, maybe even as down to a single individual that has some knowledge of the birds for some of these estimates. And I found that in some places, what I found is that the birds were actually more widespread than some of the literature showed. I would see them in places that I looked at the literature, they're not supposed to be there, but they were there in good numbers. So I actually, on some of the maps, and, and there's a map with every single species that shows the distribution. So on some of those maps, I took very conservative uh, distributions, and based on firsthand experience, I would expand that slightly. I didn't go crazy and you know expand them to, to giant areas, but if I went to an area where they were plentiful, I would add that to the map. So I found that some of the estimates were quite low because, and some of them were quite old. So that was kind of a biological thing that, that I discovered as I went. And then most of the, you know, and, and really the, the writing in the book is based on internet research. Some of it is, is my original research on Brant and things like that, things that I've done over the years. But it was really looking at hundreds and hundreds of scientific papers and trying to come up with a reasonable way to describe things because there was some things that was conflicting information for a particular species. You know, one reference would say one thing, but when I found five that said something different, I went with the five, right? And I tried to make it where somebody could look at that, read the chapters, and both the uh, Greg Menzik, uh, who helped me write the book and did, and did some of the chapters, we had the same, I kind of gave him the protocol that I wanted, and that is, is that you should be able to read every chapter and get the exact same information. You want to know what color the egg is? You can find that for a mallard, and you can find it for a Salvatore's teal. You want to find out how many days to fledging until they can fly? It's for every single species. So the consistency made it so that somebody could read that and get a good idea. Like, for instance, somebody going to Argentina to hunt, right? He's going to hunt rosy-billed poachers and yellow-billed pintails. He can now look in this book and really find out something about them as opposed to just going there and pulling the trigger. And I think a lot of the people that are buying this book are, are DU folks that want it for that reason. I mean, really, hunters are buying 85% of this book, and non-hunters are buying about 15%. I would certainly encourage all my waterfowl professionals, colleagues, waterfowl ecologists um, to, to be in that group to purchase this book. I mean, it's well beyond a coffee table book. I wouldn't even put it in that category. I mean, this is a, a reference book with world-class photography, lots of great scientific information in there. You might not have it fully referenced, you know, and, and sometimes that's a good thing, right? Because you get so many <laughs> references embedded in there and it kind of takes away from some of the reading. Uh, but I know all of this stuff, is just as you described, is referenced through your through your extensive review of the literature. But it's way more than than a coffee table book. It's a reference for professionals in this in this field and then hunters and anybody else that that wants to, to learn about these books yeah the birds so how many and what are you planning on doing with all of your miles that you racked up flying around the world <laughs> taking pictures? No. <laughs> i bet it was yeah. hundreds yeah. of thousands well it was a yeah. bunch yeah well let's see um i just went fishing in cuba i've been fishing i do a lot of fly fishing too so i've been using it up on uh on a lot of a lot of trips plus i book trips to africa too as a for game oh viewing. yeah Mm. Yeah, so I go to Africa a whole bunch. In fact, I do game. I, I book photographic trips to Africa, the Galapagos, Brazil for jaguars, and India for tigers. So I'm using it. And I said a lot of that to the side when I was working on this book, but I'm kind of back at that. 
Is that, do you have another book in, in progress right now, another big project that you wanted to tease? No, I really don't. I thought about that, but I kind of decided, you know, this is my seventh book, and the one before this was called Game Birds, and it was very similar. Uh, it was a coffee table book, photos, uh, biological information on all the game birds, pheasant, quail, grouse, and so on in North America. And then I did this one. And it's getting to the point where this one was so monumental. I'm kind of spending my time at the moment catching up on some things like, you know, going bone fishing in Cuba that I wasn't able to do. Surprisingly enough, some of the photography that I did, for instance, a lot of the South American species, I did in a hunting scenario. I was actually in Argentina on a duck hunt, and I had to, you know, tell my buddy, you know, I'm going to shoot like a, like a crazy person here until the sun comes up. And, uh, and then when the sun comes up, then I'll let you shoot, but I'm going to take photos and I'm going to call every single shot. And if I say, don't shoot, that means I'm taking a photo. So a lot of it, uh, some of the, especially South American was over decoys in a hunting scenario. And then a lot of them in a lot of the other countries were just very strictly me hiding by the edge of a wetland for days upon end getting a photo. So there was a lot of ways to do it. Gary, this has been an extraordinary conversation covering an extraordinary book, uh, an accomplishment of yours. And I'm, I am delighted to have the copy that, that I do have. And I'm going to have a lot of fun going through it, and I'm going to learn a lot as a result of it. And I appreciate, appreciate everything that you did to, to, to make this happen. I want to give you an opportunity here before we close out to make any other remarks about the book that we may have, may not have covered, but importantly, to acknowledge all the people that helped in this process that made it, made it happen. Uh, and that you also, anybody else that you need to acknowledge. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting with this book is kind of the business model was is that I financed all the travel worldwide for 36 months, and it was a lot of money. It was a ton of money, but it was worth it to me because at the end of the day, I'll have something that that I don't know that anybody else will do, or if they do, it'll be down the road quite a ways. So it's one of a kind. It's not only a coffee table book, it's a contribution to the ornithological literature, but the actual printing of the design of the book and the printing of the book, which was also a substantial amount of money, was all subsidized. And basically what it was is it was subsidized by a number of individuals that I knew through the Fish and Wildlife Service and through my outdoor writing and just folks I knew. And they donated a whole bunch of money to get that part of it done. So the actual design of the book the printing, the paper, the shipping, it was, was subsidized by a bunch of people, of which, again, 85% were duck hunters. That's who did it. But because I could do that, the book itself, forget the travel, which was a bunch of money, the book itself came free. So as a result of that, I could give it to Ducks Unlimited, for instance, who ended up with, with uh, 800 copies plus at, at half. For, I give it to them for free. For forty five at for forty five dollars, excuse me. Give it to him for free. It's sold or has a value of ninety. I ask for forty five back. You keep forty five to do good things for for waterfowl and wildlife. I did that with California Waterfowl Association and any conservation agency, so they can get the book for free. They sell it for ninety bucks. They keep forty five to do good things, and I get forty five to offset my travel. So half of the book basically got donated when it comes to the conservation agencies that were willing to either buy some or sell it. So that's kind of what happened, which made me, that was one of my goals was to give back to, which I think in that case, half the, half the proceeds from the ones that are being dealt with through conservation agencies are coming back to that agency. 
I also shipped 250 to the Wildfowl Trust in England and shipped them there free. They got them for nothing. And they're doing the same thing, selling them for 90 bucks, sending me 45 and keeping 45. Well, that's just another example of the contributions that you've made, that you continue to make throughout your, your life and your career uh, to waterfowl and wetlands conservation. And we certainly appreciate it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is fantastic, Gary. It's a great story behind it, great story all the way around, and a fantastic book for not just waterfowl hunters either. I mean, this is a fantastic preference, almost a guidebook that, um, you know, that any, you know, wildlife watcher um, should have. As a reminder, folks can find and can get their own copy of this book by visiting GaryKramer.net. That's GaryKramer, K-R-A-M-E-R.net. I encourage you strongly to to go check it out, make the purchase, or do like I did. Request it as a birthday gift or a Christmas gift to uh, to someone in your family. That works, too. Yeah, it works great. And, uh, And if you get them from me, they're all signed, and you get a signed copy. And a lot of gratitude from me for, for picking up a copy and the people that, that helped finance it, uh, super supportive. And, and, and they realize that part of their donations is they're doing that to do something good for the ducks. Gary, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for your wonderful photography through the years and through the, the amazing contribution that you made here. We really appreciate it. All right, guys. Appreciate the time. And uh, season's still going, so good hunting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. And Mike, my birthday's in March. It's coming up. And Just your, keep note and, of that. And your, and your point is, I said somebody <laughs> in your keep family. keep note of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I'm, I'll make sure to tell your wife. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Gary Kramer. We appreciate his time and, and all the work that he's done throughout his career for waterfowl and wetlands conservation. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the wonderful job that he does with these episodes and getting them out to you. And to the listener, we thank you for your time and your support of the podcast. And we thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.